0: Nelson Mandela, South Africa, forgive and be forgiven. The editor called. Get on a plane, Mandela's dying. Okay, when? Now, he's dying now, get on a plane. Right, okay, drop everything then, just like that. Friends, family, appointments, medical stuff, birthdays, sure. How long am I going for, boss? I don't know. How long will it take him to die? Uh, Then there's a funeral. This is the big one. A month? I was sent upstairs in the office to a health and safety expert, who frowned. Things are volatile right now. There could be a revolution in South Africa. You'll need a week's hostile environment training. We'll give you all the right kit, but it takes a little while to get together. When are you thinking of leaving? Um tonight. Oh, dear. I left their office with some advice on where to keep my money, how not to be followed, and who to ring in the event of a violent insurrection. We'll try and get you out, they said breezily. Good luck. So I dashed home to kiss the kids before going to Heathrow to catch a plane heading south, feeling sick. I'd been to other parts of Africa before, but only in the worst circumstances, working for a relief charity, meeting the sick and the desperately poor. I'd been scared and miserable then, and I didn't massively want to go back. But it wasn't like there was a choice. Nelson Mandela was a giant of the 20th century. His passing would be a world event. As an icon, he was up there with Elvis and Marilyn. Okay, Maybe Gandhi's more appropriate. So this was an honour to be trusted to write about an historic moment. The first draft of history, they call journalism. And sometimes that's right. And sometimes the first draft comes bloody fast. I want 2,000 words on the situation by Saturday morning, said the editor. Fully aware that my plane would not touch down in Joburg until late on Friday night. I'd have no time to talk to anyone or get any sense of what was going on, but they wanted to be able to say in Sunday's paper that I was there. We'll get you the cuts, he said breezily, and a series of cuttings duly appeared in my emails to read on the plane. Sometimes I think the secret to being a foreign correspondent is that you've seen the local media and your reader hasn't. I also had The Rough Guide to Nelson Mandela, a copy of his autobiography, a long flight and eyes that would not stay open. But when I landed, the adrenaline kicked in. I went straight to the Mediclinic Heart Hospital in Pretoria, where Mandela was said to be on kidney dialysis. And, as a member of the family put it, using machines to breathe. People were milling about in the half-light outside the hospital, hundreds of them, with no other purpose than to be there, to be close somehow. They called him by his tribal name, Madiba, or Tata, a word for father. And he was not dead yet. One handwritten note pinned to the fence, read, If you can beat prison, you can beat this. Sadly, that felt unlikely. The man had spent 27 years in prison for his resistance to apartheid, some of it in solitary confinement, some out in the blinding sun breaking rocks, some talking with his guards, becoming friends with them formulating ideas about forgiveness that would help South Africa heal. Someone had put up giant screens in the street outside the hospital, showing scenes from his life, from the black and white footage of his trial in the 60s to the day in 1990 he took a long walk to freedom, from prison to the outside world. The images played silently. Few people spoke. They watched the face of Mandela change from a young man, to a rebel, to a prisoner, then a president. I looked over their heads to the square concrete hospital, wondering if he was in any of those rooms I could see, behind any of those window blinds. Trying to think of him there, this frail 94-year-old, lying in a bed, surrounded by tubes. With his third wife Grassa in an armchair by his side, maybe, holding his hand. I was thinking of the click of the ventilator, the mechanical breath, the blip of the monitors, and the heavier breathing, sobbing of those who were allowed near, and who felt themselves about to lose him. <speaking in Spanish> What is it that makes people stand outside a hospital at a time like that, with no way of reaching the person they're thinking of, talking about, singing about, praying for? The desire to connect, perhaps, or to give thanks? A young black man in a peaked cap and the blue uniform of the police stepped past me through the crowd with formal precision. We all moved aside instinctively. The police officer placed a lighted candle on the floor, straightened up, held himself taller and saluted a portrait of Mandela that had been pinned to the hospital gates. Then he took off his cap and bowed his head. Now I noticed there were others like him all around me, a dozen or so of them, singing along with the slow, mournful song of the crowd, clapping in time, swaying with an easy elegance. Don't cry, little one. God is watching. Those were the words of the song, in the Tsonga language. It seemed a gentle thing, a lullaby. The first policeman stepped back and his shoulders dropped as he rejoined his friends. Another took his place to salute the portrait, then another and another in turn, Behind them was a man I took to be their leader because of the set of his face and the heft of his body and not just because he was the only white policeman there. He was cupping a candle with two big hands, the light playing on a bushy ginger moustache. When the ceremony was over, I approached and saw tears in his eyes. Colonel Carl, he said a little reluctantly, but when I asked what he was doing there, he answered without hesitation, Madiba is such a treasure to us. I was surprised to hear the tribal name spoken with such tenderness by an Afrikaner, but then I'd only just arrived in the country and didn't yet fully realize how people felt. He will go down in history as one man who showed the world the second commandment of the Lord that we must love each other. The colonel had grown up among white farmers. The Sharpeville massacre had taken place when he was three years old, but it was a long way from his home. As a child, you didn't understand. My best friends were young African guys. We were playing together. I could learn to speak Soto a little bit from them, and when we were naughty, my father was giving us all together a hiding He left me until last to give me the best hiding. I ate with them and learned their traditions. It was not strange to me. That is, I believe, how come I am still around here today. Apartheid was in full force then, though. All whites were forced to serve in the army for at least two years, he said. You didn't have a choice. He was able to serve in the police instead. I had provincial colours as a junior in athletics. The police were eager for sporty young lads to bolster their image. That was in 1975, the year before 600 protesters were shot and killed during the Soweto uprising. I wondered how he felt about the way his own police force behaved under apartheid. There have been significant changes over the years, said the colonel carefully. It is unfortunate what happened under previous national commissions of the police. I will never say anything bad about them. It is not for me to make a judgment on that. I was not there. I did not investigate anything. He did, however, work for the last two presidents of the apartheid era. This man had been a member of the security team for F.W. De Klerk and he'd seen for himself the rising pressure for change coming from far beyond South Africa. I can still remember the huge batch of posts that would arrive there every day. There were people appointed to open that post, to screen it for parcel bombs and other threats. As I recall, three quarters or more was from all over the globe, saying, Release Mandela! There was an outcry. We could see already, this man Mandela is a very special person. Mandela was already very famous. So much so that in England in the 80s we signed petitions, boycotted South African apples and danced to a song by the special AKA calling for his release. And my boss on the local paper in the East End of London who liked to play tricks on young reporters, sent a very young intern down to the butcher's shop for an interview about their special offer. Ask them for it, he said, hiding his smirk. They're doing it all week. So the worky, who was not much more than a kid, asked for his free Nelson Mandela. The butcher answered with two words one of which I can't repeat. When Mandela was eventually released in 1990, some Afrikaners prepared for war. They had been raised to see the likes of him as the enemy, said Colonel Carr. Wherever you would go in that time, at parties or family gatherings, people were talking about what was going to happen if the ANC won the election in 1994, said the colonel. The fear was there. People were collecting lots of tins of food and extra ammunition for the firearms. Only the whites could possess firearms legally. However, the weapons of mass destruction were with the army and so on. So what would happen if these were to be in the hands of the former enemy? He was choosing his words carefully. That is what lots of people were fearing. There would be a civil war and they would be defenceless. That didn't happen. The colonel had come to the hospital gates all these years later out of love and gratitude. There was fear amongst the white people but Madiba changed their minds with his personality. He was also like a father figure to people in the ANC and they listened to him a young black female constable said, I'm here today because of Mediba. I never thought I'd share an office with a white man. Now, though, people were worried, fearful. Without Mandela, without that calming presence and reminder of the recent inspirational past, would there be violence? The colonel knew that if there was, his officers would be in the thick of it. We know he must go sometime. All of us must go, but we pray Madiba will be able to continue his mission with us for a little while longer because there is so much still to be done. The world was talking about Mandela, the legend. People in South Africa talked about him as a man, an ordinary man, with failings. Not a great husband to his first wife, Evelyn. Not a great father to his own children, before prison and after. At the Mandela Museum in Soweto, where you could walk through his old living room from the 60s, I looked down at the big brown armchair and thought about all the nights he wasn't there. Out, fighting the fight keeping up the struggle, seeing other women. That was part of the Nelson Mandela story too. An elderly gentleman called Joseph told me, I was a young man when he was a young man. We behaved as young men do. When you think that he became the father of our nation, a hero to the world, well, it is a very big miracle. Madiba made you believe in miracles. They happened around him. That was the point. They happened through him, but also in spite of his failings. We know Madiba, said Joseph. We know him as a man. I learned that Nelson and Evelyn were married for 14 years. They had four children. A daughter died when she was just nine months old. Evelyn found consolation in religion. Nelson got deeper and deeper into politics. A son was killed in a car crash at the age of 24. Another son, later, was lost to an AIDS-related illness when he was 55. So, never mind the struggle, as a father, there were deep sorrows too. Only their daughter, Makazewa survived. And as Nelson lay in hospital now, she was fighting a legal battle for control of the Mandela Trust. Evelyn was dead, but her offspring were known as the First Family. She'd always kept out of the spotlight. Nelson Mandela's second wife, Winnie, had not. She was a political firebrand, forceful and eloquent. They were married for nearly four decades, including all the years in prison, during which time Winnie built up a power base of her own. She was accused of human rights abuses but survived as a leading member of the ANC. Winnie and her daughters were known as the second family. Her granddaughters were currently starring in a 13-part reality series called Being Mandela, revealing lives full of bling. You had to wonder what Grandad thought of that. Winnie gave press conferences at the gates of the hospital, describing herself as the senior member of this family and talking about Nelson as our husband. They'd been divorced for years. The woman actually by his bedside was Grasa Michelle, the widow of the former president of Mozambique, who'd married Mandela on his 80th birthday. She brought him happiness in old age, said Desmond Tutu who called her a strong woman of enormous stature, gracious but not to be trifled with or underestimated. So, those were the wives and children. But now, many of Mandela's seventeen grandchildren and fourteen great-grandchildren seem to have a sense of ownership of this dying man and his lucrative name. Particularly Mandela the eldest grandson, and now the patriarch. He'd dug up the bodies of Mandela's three lost children from their graves in the family ancestral village of Kunu in the Eastern Cape. Mandela moved them to his own village, 13 miles away, where he'd built a visitor's centre. He seemed to believe Grandad would agree to be buried there instead, great for tourism. But... Other members of the Mandela family had just taken Mandela to court while the old man was lying there dying, and they'd won the right for the bodies to be dug up again and put back. Tribal leaders said they were upsetting the ancestors with all this. Tutu pleaded with the family, Please, please, please may we think not only of ourselves. It is almost like spitting in Madiba's face. He didn't die. He left the hospital. I came home after three weeks of waiting outside. Then, five months later, in the middle of the night, came the call. Get on a plane! Mandela's dying! What, again? I didn't say that, of course. I got back on the plane two hours later, and while I was in the air, the death was announced. South Africa was suddenly released into mourning. The whole world joined in. The British and American media started Mandela Mania. Barack Obama flew in to be the star turn of a chaotic memorial event at a football stadium, where the heavens opened and the stands emptied. It was miserable. The thing most people remember is that a sign language interpreter on stage with the American president was exposed as, well, making it all up. Whatever he thought he was saying, with those hand gestures, it didn't have much to do with the speech. The poor man was ridiculed. Afterwards, he claimed to have suffered a schizophrenic episode and seen angels in the stadium. Madiba is dead. We are grateful for having had him among us. Now we must live, said a man outside, selling T-shirts and caps bearing the name. The traders needed to sell the icon in order to eat. The Mandela family was doing everything it could to capitalise. The politicians were wrapping themselves in his mantle as a useful disguise, including the big ones. It took a man like Mandela to liberate not just the prisoner but the jailer as well, said Barack Obama, positioning himself as the heir to all of that. The global icon of Mandela was growing, fast after his death, getting further and further from reality, until all there would be left of him was the smile. I watched an American reporter talking about how South Africans worshipped Mandela, but in truth, it was people outside the country who worshipped him. South Africans were much more pragmatic. The ones I met talked about his flaws, the emotional distance, the poor decisions as president, the dubious deals, the questionable choice of successor, to name a few. Then a street preacher, with fire in her eyes, started telling me about King David, a hero of two faiths who was a deeply flawed man. God used him anyway! Still, almost everyone I spoke to felt a powerful gratitude for real, gritty reasons. I had to come and sleep over so I can be closer. I want to say thank you, said a nurse called Masuda as she waited in the street to see the ambulance carrying the coffin come past. She was holding a yellow rose. The changes he brought into my life are so many. I'm a professional nurse because of Madiba. If it was not for him, I would still be working as an assistant with no prospects. When the black Mercedes Undertaker ambulance came by with windows showing the coffin wrapped in the national flag... Mashuda threw her rose. I'd seen this before in England, after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. There was gratitude. But the people who stood on the streets for Madiba seemed to be like moths drawn to a light, like weary travellers drawn to a warming flame. Good things had happened around him. He carried that in his presence even now. They wanted to be near it. I thought of a Sam Cooke song and the story of the lady who reached out for her lord. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I would be made whole. Mashuda couldn't touch the body of her fallen hero or even one of his fancy shirts, but she could send a flower spiralling through the air and see it bounce off the bonnet of the big black van in which he lay. That was contact. That was something. (laughs) The really personal, intimate thing for those who could make it was to see Nelson Mandela lying in state, face to face with the president, although not much of a chance for a chat. I was thrilled to be sent. I wanted to be close to this man, even if it had to be after death. So did Bono, apparently. Naomi Campbell, too. They didn't have to queue. A pensioner from Pennsylvania called Sharon said she'd travelled for two days to be there. I have regretted for 50 years not going to see John F. Kennedy after he was shot. I don't have another 50 years to regret not coming here. But, Most people were not icon collectors. The line snaked for miles through Pretoria's grid of streets and up to the Union buildings, seat of the South African government. The wait was long. Umbrellas were held as shelter from the sun. We shuffled forward in single file and some sang or hummed the songs of freedom. Parents bent down and told their hot and bothered children why this man mattered. But on the last few sandstone steps to where Madiba lay, each of us fell silent. He lay under a large arch, like a stage set, outdoors. This place had been built to show off the power of the Boers, but President Nelson Mandela had chosen not to tear down the statues or close the Union buildings, he'd chosen to occupy the space. He was still doing that now. A pair of marines in dazzling white uniforms stood guard with their heads bowed. The coffin was draped in white silk with glass over the open part, and there he was suddenly, Nelson Mandela himself, dressed in a dark shirt with swirls, lying on his back, eyes closed, head tilted a little. This was him. Close enough, you could reach out and touch him, although you'd get in a lot of trouble if you did. It didn't look like him, though, not like the face on all the posters. He was pale, bloated, harassed, not serene, not an icon of peace but there was no time to stare, just a second or two with the body before an usher gave a signal to move on, back into the open, from under the canopy and down the steps on wobbly legs, carried forward by the momentum of the line. I sat down in the garden where the air was heavy with the thick scent of many flowers. I had to sit down, trembling, ambushed by feelings I couldn't process. There was... An overwhelming sense of absence, actually. The body I'd just seen was a husk, a snakeskin discarded. His light and his energy were elsewhere. He'd moved on. If the man's soul had been oceanic, as everybody said, the body was a pebble washed up on the shore. "'He's not here!' said a woman in her Sunday best, "'coming down the steps, face wet with tears. "'He's not here! He's not here!' "'But he was, kind of, everywhere. "'The man had gone away, leaving only his body. "'The lover, the father, the friend, gone. "'But his face was everywhere. "'His memory was everywhere. "'His effect was everywhere.' living in the people, or at least in their hopes. As Tutu says, I am because we are. If you can find a way of connecting with people as Mandela did, if you can believe we are interdependent, good and bad, if you can make people feel better about themselves, help them to forgive to let go of the anger and hurt that hurts them and find release and live together side by side, even in disagreement, even as flawed, broken, disappointing human beings. If you can do that yourself, forgive and be forgiven. If you can believe there is something more to aim for, something higher. And... Help others get there. Then maybe you can, like Mandela, become bigger than yourself. I... I went to the funeral at the village of Kunu in the Eastern Cape. Well, I was allowed to park up with the rest of the reporters on a ridge overlooking the valley, a patchwork of green and brown fields separated by chicken wire fences and dotted with circular huts and two-room shacks. The one exception was the House of the Mandelas, surrounded by trees with a sloping red-tiled roof. It looked like an out-of-town Tesco. Next to this were a couple of vast white marquees for the guests, including presidents and kings, Prince Charles and Oprah Winfrey. And beyond that, a small white canopy over the grave itself. Security was very tight. One of us reporters paid a villager for the chance to secretly lie among the goats in an outhouse way down below, within the ring of steel, overnight. After sleepless hours on the mud floor, they'd been found out and marched back up the hill by soldiers. Little boys from the outskirts of the village ran about among us with excitement as six propeller-driven aircraft with South African flags on their tails flew very low over the valley, followed by the boom of five fighter jets. The boys shouted out, Kuno! Kuno! Then Then. There was silence on the hillside. One of the boys was sitting on the bonnet of my car and told me what I hoped was his name. Lucanu. Cole, I said, hand on my heart. He smiled, then pointed at the pair of binoculars hanging at my chest. I said, do you want to go? He was about ten or eleven, same age as my kids back home. I got the impression he'd never looked through a pair of these before, so I watched his face as he held them up to his eyes, squinted and tried to see through, struggled to fix them on the right place. Then, from his expression, I guess he saw it the white canopy and the grave itself, far away across the valley, but now close up as the lenses defied the rules and showed what was possible. Now he was there. In his mind, sitting among the VIPs as the band played, a very special person. Suddenly, for a moment, the world looked different, looked how it could be. The barriers had dropped and he was included. I'll never forget that smile. Thanks for listening. The music you heard was recorded at the Regina Mundi Church in Soweto at a memorial mass and at the Nelson Mandela Foundation in Johannesburg a few days after his death. And the sounds were people reacting as the van carrying the coffin went past on the road in Eastern Cape on the way to the funeral. Can We Talk is a collection of true stories about encounters with remarkable people and what they tell us about how to live, really, how to be better humans. It's brought to you by Hodder Faith. I'd love to know what you think of it, really, and to hear your stories. So do please get in touch with me, Cole Morton, on social media or via the website hodderfaith.com. Thanks.